We're continuing our sermon series. We started last week uh, a new sermon series called It's Time. Uh, and we're going to be in the, the book John, chapter 12. So again, if you want to prep yourself to, to get there. Uh, but I'm sure a lot of us have all been on a train at some point in life. You've probably either ridden on a train to head down to the city and come back. Maybe it was a train kind of out in like Stroudsburg area where you wanted to take the kids or the grandkids and have some sort of nostalgic feeling. Uh, or maybe the only train you've ridden is possibly at an amusement park, right? But I'm sure we've all been on a train. Well, anybody that knows anything about trains or has ridden on a train or you've played with trains, there's always that one thing that you hear, right? It's that last call, you know, that, that phrase, all aboard. Right, where the conductor comes out and he, he stands there on the platform and he looks around and it's that final message, that final call uh, to the people to say, hey, the train's about to start moving. Uh, and so if you are getting on the train, you need to get on because I'm telling the engineer right now that he's gonna start this thing and this train's gonna start moving. And once that train starts moving, you're not getting on it. So you, you got to make that decision now if you're getting on it. And I'm, almost, I'm sure we've all seen the movies, right, where the person's standing on the platform and they're, they're wrestling in the inner thoughts and then they make that dramatic charge right at the end to quickly hop on the train at the end and you're like, ah, oh, yes, they made it, right? And there's that euphoric feeling that happens, right? Well, um, as we go through the message today, again, we're talking about what is it that God is committing to in this final week of ministry. Uh, and what we're seeing here is that as he's moving closer and closer to the cross, and he's prepared to give his life away for both you and me and for all of humanity, he's offering up a final call here in this passage. He's offering up that final announcement to essentially not just the people that he's speaking to in here, but really to the entire world to say, this is my last call to get on board. And so as that train is going to start pulling out, Christ is pleading with us that we would get on board of that train. Uh, and so last week we talked about how he committed to his death and his kingship, right? And, and he, he had Mary who came and, and uh, just worshiped at his feet. And I hoped that you found that Mary moment of worship uh, and there was something that God stirred in your heart. And we also saw that triumphant entry where he comes riding in as they proclaimed, Hosanna, God save us, waving those palm branches of victory that he has come right, to claim his kingship. So that's what we discussed last week. And so let's continue. Uh, John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. It says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it only remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. 
So we have some Greeks that come up. Now, when we use the word Greeks here, we really kind of get the sense that they're, they're really talking about Gentiles, right, the non-Jews. So they've come up. They've come up to celebrate the feast. We have a sense that they're, they're some sort of converts to possibly Judaism or, or followers of Christ. And they're like, we want to talk to Christ. We, we, we have some questions for him. We have some information. Now, it doesn't say to us what it is that specifically they were wondering or asking for, but word gets filtered along to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, there's some guys here that want to talk to you. Now, it's interesting because right away, Jesus just goes into this little speech here about a kernel of wheat, right? We don't have, again, we have no sense of what the conversation was supposed to be about, but Jesus just decides, I'm going to tell you what you actually need to hear right now. And so he says right away, he says, the hour has come, the Son of Man to be glorified. And he gives this analogy again of a kernel of wheat. And he talks about how this single kernel of wheat, that when it dies, it will produce many seeds. And so twofold here. One, again, he's alluding to his death. And he's saying, look, I have to go and give my life away. I have to die because when I die through my death, there is going to be an abundance in return. And then he turns to the second part here, though. And he says, it's not just me that has to die, but everyone else needs to die. Because if you are willing to die, then you will also have this produce of seeds and abundance in your life as well. And he says, listen, you got to make a choice, though, here. You can't cling to the things of this world and the things of the flesh and still have me. You can't kind of have both. You've got to make the choice. Are you going to choose to follow me? And are you going to die to yourselves and live for me? Or are you going to hold on to these things of the world and forego all of its worldly pleasures and desires? Okay, so again, they're at odds with one another. But again, he uses this analogy of a kernel of wheat because, again, most people are men of the land at this point. They are shepherds, they're herdsmen, they're farmers. So as he talks about this, everybody gets complete total sense of exactly what he means. So in terms of farming, a kernel of wheat, they have said that, you know, when it, when it falls to the ground and it starts to work its way into the soil, again, instantly it'll start to produce a stalk to get to the sun, to get the energy there, and it'll shoot a root down into the ground so that way it can get the nutrients. But they say over the next four months, that kernel of wheat will go through 11 different stages of transformation before it becomes a full wheat stalk. And that one kernel of wheat will now produce about 100 to 125 other little kernels of wheat. And so over a five, kind of a five-time cycle of, of the kernel of the wheat falls and it, it grows and then it produces more and it falls, they say over five times it produces 20 billion kernels of wheat. And, and they've estimated, they said that with that 20 billion kernels of wheat, it could feed 400 people for 30 years. That one single kernel of wheat can feed 400 people over 30 years. And so that's what Christ is saying. He says, look, I got to die. 
Because in my death, there is going to be an abundance of life. And if you are willing to do the same, you will experience that same abundance of life as well. Now, it's interesting because a lot of times the world will talk about Christianity. And they will talk about how Christianity is a very repressive religion. It holds people back from their freedoms and the things that they desire and they want. Now, in some extent, I agree to that. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek here, right? That yes, Christianity to some extent is repressive. And it's repressive in the sense that God is calling you to refrain from the things of the world. The things that we call sin, sexual immorality, greed, anger, selfishness. Yes, God doesn't want you to do that. And he's saying you shouldn't do those kinds of things. Okay? Uh, and what Christ is calling us, he's saying, I don't want you to follow the things of this world. I don't want you to follow the, the flesh that your, your, your body so craves and desires. And it's not because God is overly controlling or God is oppressive or God is vindictive. No, it's because God cares about you and God wants what's best for your life. And if we see it the proper way, God is not trying to enslave us. He's trying to free us. That's what the world gets wrong so often, is they look at God and they say, God is the one who's trying to enslave you, where no, it's the world that is doing it to you, and you don't realize what Christ has done for you. Right? There's a reason why he says earlier in John 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, the world is trying to rob you of its joy while Christ is trying to give it to you. That, that's what, again, the world so misconstrues. Okay? So these people show up, and right away he says, Colonel of Wheat, I want to give you life to the fullest. Okay? All right, now let, let's continue here. Verse 27. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason that I come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it, said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your own benefit, not mine. Now it is time for judgment on this world. And now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I am lifted up from the earth, he will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. And the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? All right, so first off, Christ is troubled here. And again, we may think that's a little bit odd considering Christ is God and he's divine, right? But remember, he is both God and human at the same time. He still experiences, right, this world. So he knows what is about to come in his death. He is prepared for the agony of the cross, he is prepared for the weight of the sins that are going to be pulled out in terms of the wrath of God. And so Christ is troubled because he knows all of this is about what's going to happen. 
But again, his concern and his care is for us. Uh, and so then all of a sudden there's this voice, this voice from heaven. And the people there are like, that was thunder. And some people are like, no, that was an angel. And God's like, listen, Christ is saying here, he says, that's not for me. I, I, I don't need to know what's happening. I know what's going on. That was for you. And, and I find it interesting, the response. Because, see, what we have is really two sides of the argument here. There are those that said it thundered and have attributed the voice of God to a natural phenomenon, to nature itself. And there are some that are like, no, that was an angel. That came from God. And that's, I think, what John is trying to do here right now. He's saying there are those that just don't get it, who don't understand and who don't believe and think it was simply the thunder. But there are those on the other side that are able to hear the voice of God and are able to attribute the things of this world to what God has done. And then he goes on and he says, now it's time for judgment. And he says that judgment is going to come in the way of the cross. That when I am high and lifted up on that cross and what you say about me is how you are going to be judged. So if you look at me as Lord and Savior, you'll be held accountable in that sense. And if you deny me as Lord and Savior, you'll be held accountable in that sense. And so as a result, as he's, he's, he's laying this out for the people, the crowd's a little confused. And they start kind of citing some Old Testament passages here. And they're basically like, wait, the Son of Man? And understand, again, that goes back to Daniel chapter 7. It's a very messianic statement when we use the phrase Son of Man. They're like, wait, the Son of Man? I thought he was going to live forever. He's not going to die. Who is this Son of Man? Right. So there's some confusion in the crowd here. They still haven't quite gotten who Jesus is. Okay. So, so Jesus is like, okay. Let me try to help you out a little bit here. So let's keep reading, verse 35 and 36. Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. And when he finished speaking, Jesus left and he hid himself from them. So Jesus is like, all right, let me try to help you out here. Okay, you gotta put your hope and faith and trust in the light. The light's gonna go away, okay? But the light will be there, the light will come back. I am that hope, I am that light. This, this is where you need to put your faith and then you can also become a son of light. You can then become a child of God. Now, some people may look at this and go, why doesn't he just come out and say it? Why is he talking about this idea of light and darkness? It, it, it seems still, they're confused, Jesus. You don't really seem like you're doing a very good job of helping them understand exactly what you want them to understand. Well, that's not the case at all. See, Jesus is using terminology he's already used before when he's spoken to the people. In John chapter 8, he says, I'm the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And when he uses that phrase, the I am phrase, he uses that multiple times in the book of John. He says, I am the bread of life, right? I am the light of the world. I I am the shepherd. I am is so significant because it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. When Moses stood there at the burning bush and, and God calls him and says, I have a message through you for the rest of the people that I'm going to save my people. And Moses is ready to leave. And he's like, but who am I supposed to say sent me? God's response is tell them, I am sent you. So the fact that he's using the phrase I am is him equating himself to God and so in John 8 later, when he says, you, he says, I tell you the truth before Abraham was born, I am. That is why they picked up stones to kill Jesus, because they said, that's blasphemy, Jesus. You can't say that you're God. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly what I'm saying. So when we look at this and we think Jesus is being very cryptic about what he's saying, he's being abundantly clear exactly what he's saying. The people just aren't listening. Okay? All right. So he's going to continue now, and he's going to continue in this idea of them wrestling with their unbelief here. All right, so um, verse uh, 37 now. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. And Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So he says, look, I've done all these miraculous signs. They still don't get it. And he says, you know what? That's actually fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah had said all the way back in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, if you don't know anything about Isaiah, he was a prophet called to speak to wayward Israel to call them back from their sins and their rebellion. That was his job. And God basically said to him, he said, listen, you're going to preach this message and the people aren't going to listen to you. It's going to be a real hard time for you, Isaiah. You're going, to, you're going to call people in repentance to their sins, and they're just not going to have it, Isaiah. Okay? Uh, and, and so this is the part that's kind of difficult for us, though. Because when I read that, what it sounds like to me is that God doesn't want people to be saved. It sounds as if God has just made these people and he's just going to say, well, you know what, I'm not going to let you believe and I'm just going to automatically send you to hell. Right. Well, let, let me let me try to help us understand this, because that is in no way what God is saying. Right. And people will use passages like this. Right. To talk about God as being an unloving and unjust and an unfair God. And that is not the case at all. OK. So so first off, what we need to understand is God does not send people to hell. OK. God is sovereign. God is all knowing. God is all powerful. God is all omniscient. He's he's everywhere. Okay, God has all total power and control in his hands. 
And so if that's the case, everyone will then argue, well, why doesn't God just save everybody? If God has all power, why doesn't he just save everybody, get rid of evil and everything, be all hunky-dory, perfectly fine? Okay, well, first off, Ezekiel 33, 11. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live, turn and turn from their evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And 1 Timothy 2, 4, God, our, our sovereign, who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Okay, so first off, God's desire is for all people to accept him, is for all people to find the light, and is for all people to be saved. That is God's desire. That is why God has sent his son to this world. Okay? The ancient writers had a much better understanding of this dichotomous tension. See, we often wrestle with this idea of man's free will and God's sovereignty, that somehow they can't coexist because they seem to be opposites, right? Because if God was all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants. And if God's allowing people to make their own choices, then it doesn't seem like God is all-powerful or God is sovereign. It's kind of like, if God knows all, why do we bother to pray, right? Those types of arguments. Well, again, that didn't bother ancient writers. That was, to them, it was a mystery of God who simply said, listen, our minds are finite, We are feeble and weak individuals. You are trying to wrestle with the full magnitude and understanding of God with the little piece of knowledge that you have. And because you can't grasp the almighty and infinite God, that somehow this is God's problem and not ours, right? And the Old Testament writers were like, that's not a big deal. God is both sovereign and there's also free will and they exist together and let's move on. But the problem is for a lot of us, it plagues us and we plague us and we wrestle with this idea. And instead of just sitting in the graces and the love and the mercy of God, we we, we fight this idea and we end up doing one of two things. We either say, well, if God is all powerful, but yet people die in their sins and they go to hell, then God doesn't exist and God is not good. Or we strip away all responsibility and just say God's responsible for everything that exists and everything's his fault. And either way, we should still hate God in the end. Okay? And so that's, that's the problem there. This is a mystery. And again, I encourage you not to say that we don't ever wrestle with the thoughts of God. But at some point, we also just have to recognize that we are not as smart as God. Okay? All right. Now, for some of you who are like, you know what, that's okay, I'm going to move on. And some of you are still like, I still don't get it, Adam. All right, so let me just try a little bit more here um, to, to kind of make this point here. So, again, God does not send people to hell, okay? Romans chapter 1, 24 through 28, and I don't have the whole passage there, just a portion, but it says, therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts. And later on, he says, furthermore, Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so they would do what they ought not to be done. God is giving them over to their desires. Okay, And then when we think about Isaiah again, right? Isaiah 6, God has blinded and hardened the hearts of people. Well, guess what? That comes after Isaiah chapter 1. 
And what do we see in Isaiah chapter 1? He says, I have reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his own owner's manager, but Israel does not know my people, nor do they understand. Ah, sinful nation, you are people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, and they have forsaken the Lord, and they have spurred the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. They've already made a decision to rebel against God. They've already made that decision in their heart to say, I'm going to turn away from God. Now, we see this before, actually, when God is dealing with Pharaoh in Egypt, right? Remember, Moses is supposed to go and he says, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh's resistant. And finally, he lets them go and they cross the Red Sea. Well, it's interesting because five times in Exodus 9 through 14, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Again, are we to say that God is responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart to do evil? No, because five times before that, in Exodus 7 through 9, Pharaoh hardened his heart first. That's what we need to get through here. We as humans make our choice to harden our hearts to God, and God in his infinite wisdom and knowledge will then say, if that is the decision you're going to make, I'm going to turn you over to that. Now, again, just remember, that's not God's desire for us. But if we are going to turn our backs on God, God is going to allow that choice to be made. St. John Chrysostom, he was a, a bishop of uh, Constantinople uh, back in late 300s, early 400s, said this. He said, whereby it is plain that we begin to for forsake first and are the cause of our own perdition. For as it is not the fault of the sun that hurts weak eyes, so neither is God to blame for punishing those who do not attend to his words. And St. Augustine said the same thing. From a hidden judgment of God comes perversity of heart, so that the refusal to hear the truth leads to the commission of sin. And this sin is itself a punishment for the preceding sin or refusing to hear the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 tells us they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So I want to be absolutely clear here. God is not responsible for our sin. God is not responsible for our condemnation. God does not send people to hell. That is not his desire whatsoever. And anybody that tries to argue that is a lie. And do not fall into that trap. We are held accountable to the decisions that we make. And that does not negate the almighty and infinite power of who God is. Okay? So God has laid this out for them. And he said, you've got a choice here. You have a decision. And I'm telling you that I am the light of this world. And there is going to be a judgment that happens when I am held high upon the cross. All right, so let's continue now in verse 42 here. And he's going he's to kind of wrap this up again. It says, yet at the same time, many among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but only in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. And I have come into the world as a light 
so that the one who, does, who believes in me should not stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me to what to say and how to say it. And I know that his commands leads to eternal life, so that whatever I say is just what the Father has told me. All right, so first off, we have a set of leaders here. And it says they believed, but out of fear of the Pharisees and out of the love of man more than the love of God, they're kind of not acknowledging it. And there's really kind of two sides when I see this. First off, one, we can't love the world and we can't love Christ. We can't desire to be in the graces of God while still loving the praise of men. So we have to make a choice. Are you going to follow Christ or are you going to seek your own desires? Okay, so that's one part of it. The, the other part of this is that I want us to consider, you know, there's a wonderful joy in coming to know Jesus Christ. There, there is a blessing that we're in the graces of God and we understand that. Life is not perfect, but man, life is good. And it's easy for us to, to have Christ and look at the world and go, I just don't get what they don't understand. How do they not see the joy of Jesus Christ? Well, we have to remember, guys, not everybody hears the message of Jesus Christ and then we say, pray the prayer, and then they get down on their knees and they're saved. Faith is a journey for a lot of people. There's a lot of wrestling that happens with our own flesh and the desires of this world. And for some people, coming to know Christ doesn't happen in an instant. For some people, coming to know Christ could take a year. It could take multiple years. It could take decades for some people to finally bend their knee to Jesus. And so I want us to be compassionate towards those people. I want us to be praying for those people. Because, again, it's not always an instant thing that happens. For some people, it takes time. Okay? But Jesus, again, though, is trying to be very clear. He says, I am the way to salvation. That if you believe in me, that if you believe in me, you will have life. You will have the kingdom of heaven. You will have God. You will have the abundance and everything that God promised and desired if you believe in me. And so again, he uses this light and darkness analogy again. And again, another second time, he talks about this idea of judgment. And again, notice that though. He says, I didn't come to judge the world. I have come to save it. Because what you say and what you believe about me is how you're going to be judged. But Christ said, my life was to come and give it away for you, to shed my blood for your sins on the cross. That's what I desire. That's what God wants from you. And that's what he's pleading for these people. 
Now, the Bible uses a technique that we call parallelisms. If you ever notice when you read the Bible, it's constantly repeating ideas again and again and again and again and again, especially when you read the Psalms, right? Sometimes it's like you read the same verse four or five times in a row. But the point of that and the reason why they do it is because it's this idea that it's trying to emphasize and make a point here. That's the way the, 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 the writers of the scriptures would go about this. And so twice he basically says the same thing. So from, from, from John chapter 20 to verse 36 and from verse 37 to 50, he says, look, you have a group of people and I'm telling them about light and, light and darkness and I'm telling them about judgment. And then I say the same thing again. There's a group of people and there's light and darkness and there's a judgment. Because Christ wants them to understand. And you've got three groups of people. You have people who believe. You have people who are on the fence and don't know. And you have people who have hardened their hearts to God and have turned their hearts away from him. And again, he's saying, what you say about me on the cross is how you're going to be judged. So we have to ask ourselves, where are we? Have I looked at Christ and said, you are my Lord and Savior? Have I looked at Christ and said that you have died for the forgiveness of my sins? And have I looked at Christ and said, I believe that the fact that you died and rose again to prove everything that you have said and to prove that you are God and to prove that you have conquered death. God is, has throughout history is constantly showing himself to a wayward group of people who stand in disobedience and rebellious to him, who is constantly saying to them, I am offering my son for you. I am offering my son for you. I am offering my son for you. But that decision is for us. Again, Christ is moving to this final hour. And twice he has just told the people about the way to get to heaven. And so this is his last call. This, this is his all aboard. He's letting the people know the train is starting to move out of here. And you have to make a decision. Are you going to get on the train? Or are you going to stand on the platform and let it go by? You know, we don't know when our last call is. We don't know when our life is going to end. We have no idea that on the way home, our life could be taken from us. We might have another 20 years. We may have another 50 years. Only God understands when our time has come. And so what I pray is that you carefully consider your decision of what you say about who Christ is, because it has eternal implications. But understand that Christ has never forced his love on you. He's never going to hold a sword to your head in order to get you to believe. But he showed how much he loved you when he went to the cross. And that's what he's asking you to say. So I'm going to pray here. I'm going to pray three things. One, for those that don't know Christ, I'm going to pray that the hardness of their heart would melt away, that the spiritual blinders that Satan has put over their eyes would fall, 
I'm going to pray for those that are wrestling and saying, I think there might be a God. There's got to be something more to this world, but I'm not sure. Is it Jesus? Is is it is it Muhammad? Is it is it Buddhism? I'm going to pray for those people that the spirit would come into their heart and bring them clarity to finding Christ. And for those of us that have made this decision, that have said, I'm I'm already on the train, Adam. I thank the Lord for you. But my prayer for you is that you will now be a conduit of light. That you will be able to share that truth, that light of the gospel, that you may be the one calling people to get on the train as Christ has done for us. So let's pray. Father, you have committed your life to us. And in this process, you've committed to us a decision. Lord, what, what are we going to say about you? Lord, I pray for those that have turned their backs on you, who have proclaimed, like the Psalms say, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Father, I pray, I pray that they would find in their brokenness, they would find you. Father, I, I pray that you would work in their hearts and in their minds, work in their lives, Lord, that whatever is holding them back, whatever obstacle that Satan has put in their way, that it would be removed and that they could see the truth and see the light. Lord, I pray for those of us that wrestle. Lord, there has to be more. There has to be a God, but I don't quite understand it. I pray that your gentle spirit would come in and guide them, Father, to the all knowing an all-powerful Lord Jesus Christ, that they would understand who you are. And Lord, for those of us that have proclaimed you as Lord and Savior, may we be able to proclaim the light and darkness. May, May we be able to show people that our judgment is based upon what we say. Father, may we be given the words to speak to those that don't know you. Father, put us in opportunities and make it so abundantly clear that this is the moment that you have given to us to share. Father, that we would in our boldness seize that moment out of love and compassion for them, the way that you had love and compassion for us at the cross to proclaim who it is that you are. And to be able to ask that question, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Father, we praise you that you love us. We praise you that there is no greater example of that than at the cross. Amen.